Welcome to South Sudan in Focus on the Voice of America. I'm John Tanza on this live broadcast from Washington. Here are some of the top stories making news across Sudan and South Sudan this Friday, January 12, 2024. The director of Human Rights Watch says the international community should hold perpetrators of abuses accountable. There has been no clear commitment on the part of the international community to ensure that this, the, the fight in the warring parties are either brought to the table or it is made clear to them that there will be consequences for all of these atrocity crimes. And the UN's top court began hearings on South Africa's case against Israel for, quote, genocide. Our government has approached the International Court of Justice to prevent the unfolding genocide in Gaza. We have also asked for provisional measures which include an immediate suspension of Israel's military operations in and against Gaza. We'll have these stories and more coming up on South Sudan in Focus. Human Rights Watch annual review of rights around the globe highlights severe human rights crisis in Sudan and Ethiopia. The report features rampant wartime atrocities and insufficient international aid. The Sudan conflict has resulted into mass killings, especially in West Darfur state, while Ethiopia continues to face gross rights abuses against civilians. VOA's Nabil Biagio spoke with Mousi Segun, Human Rights Watch Africa director who is calling for global and regional action to address this crisis. We have documented widespread ethnically targeted atrocities, especially in West Afor, including hundreds of extrajudicial and other unlawful killings by both sides to the conflict. It also includes sexual violence, widespread pillage, arson, including over the last seven weeks in the regional capital of West Afor, El Jinina. Um, both parties also have committed indiscriminate attacks in Khartoum. They have decimated the city's essential infrastructure, especially the health system. They have forced millions of people to flee from their homes. They have possibly taken over people's homes, people's property. The military, that's the, the Sudan Armed Forces, has also bombed civilian infrastructure. They have harassed people who are responding to the civilian harm. They blocked critical aid while the rapid support forces have occupied civilian homes and have committed widespread pillage and rape in areas under their control in the capital, both Kashom and Abdurman. And keep places of refuge, including El Fashir, uh, and Wad Madani uh, have also more recently been a site of new fighting and civilian harm, where people have managed to flee to for safety, have come under the control of the rapid support, support forces, and they have carried out horrible atrocities in those locations as well. I move on very quickly to Ethiopia. Uh, this on there remains precarious in that way throughout the entire year. The fighting between the Ethiopian military and the militias in the Amhara region began last April. It's escalated since then and shows no signs of abating. The fighting has resulted in hundreds of civilian deaths and injuries, the destruction again um, here in Ethiopia of civilian infrastructure and loss of livelihood. The parliament of Ethiopia declared a sweeping 
six-month state of emergency in the Amhara region, but is being implemented across the country. Since that declaration, mass arrests of ethnic Amharas have been reported in the region and in Addis Ababa, the capital, including of journalists, um, those who are considered critical of the government's um, actions, political opposition figures. The government continues to repress and attack freedom of expression throughout the year, including through intimidating and arresting journalists, political figures, and um, civil society actors. Uh, your report uh, mentions historical grievances and impunity uh, contributing to widespread violations against civilians. And I, I would like to focus on Sudan here a little bit. Sudan is facing the largest uh, displacement crisis we have in the world right now. More than 7 million people have been displaced, uh, more than 10,000 killed. How does Human Rights Watch recommend addressing these root causes to prevent further human rights abuses in the region, and in Sudan in particular? The Sudan situation, I think, belatedly, has begun to receive some international attention because what is clear is that the, the two individuals, General Alboran uh, and um, Hemeti, are unwilling to sit down together to end this carnage uh, on human lives and property. So it has become imperative that the international community steps in. And whether, you know, under duress or in any other way that they can bring these men to the to the table and ensure that the fighting stops, especially the attacks on civilians. The problem is that until recently, there has been no clear commitment on the part of the international community to ensure that this, the, the fight in the warring parties are either brought to the table or it is made clear to them that there will be consequences for all of these uh, atrocity crimes. Until recently, uh, 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 that is when the UN Human Rights Council established a fact-finding mission for at his last session in October. We believe that it presents a, an important opportunity, not just for the United Nations and all of its member countries, but for the African Union to engage um, with this fact-finding mission, to support and collab- collaborate with it um, through its country rapporteur uh, for Sudan and, and the re- relevant mechanisms. It is important that there is um, the, the information about the abuses, who is doing what, who is responsible for what, be gathered and preserved. Because ultimately the goal is to ensure accountability. Those who have carried out these abuses must not go free. That's Moasi Segun, Human Rights Watch Africa Director. She spoke to Nabil Biagio on Thursday via WhatsApp from the Kenyan capital, Nairobi. The year 2023 was a consequential year for human rights suppression and wartime atrocities, especially in the Horn of Africa region. A report by Human Rights Watch published Thursday says the rights group also blames the international community for not doing enough to protect civilians. VOA's Nairobi Bureau Chief Mariama Diallo has this report. Governments in the Horn of Africa dealt with large-scale humanitarian crises in 2023. With no checks on abuses in Sudan and Ethiopia, civilians withstood the worst of atrocities committed in the name of war, the report by Human Rights Watch says. Latisha Bader is a deputy director in the Africa Division at the Rights Group. 
we saw blatant flouting of very basic laws of war, human rights law by governments. In Sudan, a war that broke out last April between the Sudanese army and the paramilitary rapid support forces has killed thousands and displaced millions of civilians, sparking a humanitarian crisis. The report says the warring parties repeatedly used heavy weapons in densely populated areas and that instead of treating this crisis as a priority, influential governments and regional bodies have pursued short-term gains at the expense of rights-driven solutions. Time and again, we saw how there was limited diplomatic willingness at the regional level but also at the international level to really press for the sort of accountability which is needed to end these cycles of impunity. Several countries, including the United States and Saudi Arabia, tried to broker ceasefires in Sudan but weren't successful. In Ethiopia, after parties to the conflict in the northern part of the country signed a secession of hostilities agreement in late 2022, which Bader says resulted in improvement in the human rights and humanitarian situations in parts of Tigray, the limited international efforts to promote meaningful accountability and an end to abuses quickly dissipated, the report says. Over the last six months in particular, we've seen um, a deteriorating rights situation and fighting in the Amhara region. Here again, we are seeing the impact on the civilian community. We've documented cases of, of, of extrajudicial killings, sexual violence, but also the, the devastating impact that this ongoing cycles of fighting is having on civilians' ability to access basic care. Fighting erupted in Tigray in late 2020 after the Tigray People's Liberation Front attacked army bases across the region. The attacks initially overwhelmed the federal military, which later mounted a counteroffensive alongside Eritrean soldiers and forces from the neighboring region of Amhara. In 2021 alone, 5.1 million Ethiopians became internally displaced, a record for the most people internally displaced in any country in any single year at the time, according to the Council on Foreign Relations. Mariama Jalo, VOA News, Nairobi. From Nairobi, we move to Cape Verde, where the World Health Organization has certified the country as malaria-free, making a significant achievement in global health. The nation becomes the third, the 43rd country worldwide to achieve this certification. According to WHO, more than 90% of malaria cases are in sub-Saharan Africa and the majority of victims are children under five. WHO says that Cape Verde has gone three consecutive years without local malaria transmission and has not reported a single case since January 1st, 2021. For more insight, VOA's health correspondent Lino Mudu spoke with Dr. Dorothy Achu, team lead for tropical and vector-borne diseases in the Regional Office for Africa. It took a lot of hard work on the part of the leadership of, of, of um, Cabo Verde. Uh, this is over 50 years of uh, fighting against malaria. It's um, it's a small country with a uh, with low trans, uh, malaria transmission, so they were already um, identified as eligible for eliminating malaria by 2025. So uh, the government of Cabo Verde has been working hard on this, and they have had several iterations 
of reducing incidents and even elimination, eliminating the disease before this uh, this year of for the certification. The country had a five-year strategies. What what do you think other African countries can learn from the Cabo Verde experience? Yes, the Cabo Verde just completed um, a strategy for elimination of malaria. It takes um, determination to get to zero cases. And uh, once a country adopts that kind of policy, it means they are ready to mobilize the resources that it takes in terms of strengthening the follow-up of cases, uh, what we call surveillance. Surveillance is really tracking down all cases, making sure they are identified early and treated with very effective medication. But not only that, also looking at the vectors that transmit the parasite from one person to another, the mosquitoes. So uh, there's been a lot of work in understanding the distribution of the mosquitoes, their behavior, and the choice of interventions. The Cabo Verde has been involved in mass campaigns of spraying and, and reducing the mosquito density, and also um, now getting to fight resistance and, and trying to get the right interventions to uh, eliminate the, the, the malaria vectors. So they have reduced the, the vectors, the density of vectors, but most importantly, they have eliminated the parasites from the vectors. So you can have mosquitoes, but you no longer have the parasites because they, they are no longer circulating in the, in the country. How does the WHO collaborate with uh, uh, Cabo Verde to ensure that uh, they can sustain this achievement? We have worked with Cabo Verde to develop a strategy, which is to prevent the re-establishment of malaria. And in that plan, uh, it takes really strengthening the health system, the laboratory systems to, to properly diagnose, uh, train the doctors, nurses, train uh, surveillance officers, train vector control teams to be able to uh, monitor uh, cases that could be suspected for malaria, but on the vector space also identify that there are no infected mosquitoes. Cabo Verde is the third country to be certified in the WHO Africa region after Mauritius and Algeria, which were certified in 1973 and 2019, respectively. You're listening to South Sudan in Focus on The Voice of America. Coming up, are journalists safe during elections coverage? Stay tuned for an answer to that question after the break. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Bill Yabaro, and I have some electrifying news for you. AFCON 2023 is here, and I'll be at Ivory Coast covering all things AFCON for VOA Africa. We'll have exciting coverage on radio, TV, and all of our digital platforms. Make sure you check out voaafrica.com for AFCON updates. Stay locked right here on VOA Africa. You are listening to South Sudan in Focus from the Voice of America. 
with more than 40 countries, including U.S. and South Sudan, holding national elections in 2024, analysts say artificial intelligence, disinformation and journalism safety will be the biggest issues for newsrooms. VOA's Christina Chacedo-Smith has the story. Presidential elections in Argentina set the stage for what generative AI can do on a campaign trail. Javier Milei and his rival, Sergio Massa, use artificial intelligence technology to produce posters and videos to promote their campaigns and to try to discredit one another. The images brought confusion and public debate over how AI is used, experts argue. As Milei takes up his new role as president, more than 40 countries will hold elections, some pivotal, including Pakistan, Mexico and the U.S. And newsrooms are preparing for what many say could be a challenging year for journalists. Clayton Wimmers is executive director of the U.S. Office of Reporters Without Borders. You know, press freedom is enshrined in the First Amendment, but we are experiencing a political moment where a lot of politicians seem to be questioning the value of an independent media and of journalism as an institution. The last U.S. presidential election year was one of the most violent for media in the U.S., with press watchdogs documenting assaults, arrests, and threats as Americans contended with the campaigns, a pandemic, and mass protests over racial injustice. With elections in 2024, the biggest challenges for media will be AI, disinformation, and safety. Sharon Moshavi is president of the International Center for Journalists. And that security is both in person, whether you're covering rallies or or, or things of that nature, you know, candidate events. That has become a deeper issue. And then there is online security. Another concern for Moshavi and her team at the International Center for Journalists, or ICFJ, is artificial intelligence, which she says can trick even the savviest of voters. Generative, I should say, is rapidly changing the information ecosystem. And journalists are very concerned and worried about dealing with deep fakes with misinformation with disinformation the icfj is working to ensure that journalists have the tools and support they need through its disarming disinformation initiative we think it's imperative that every reporter frankly become a disinformation reporter it's affecting every aspect of our lives reporters without borders has set up a database to track violations against media in the u.s and provide an overview of conditions for media in different states we are launching a project right now that's going to examine exactly how big those differences are and where they exist so for instance if you are a reporter in california how does that compare to your experience as a reporter in south dakota the state press freedom index will examine factors like news deserts and pluralism of news outlets covering local issues, among other challenges. As the election campaign gets underway in the U.S., analysts say trust in media will be important. I think that there is a deep correlation between trusting information and the power of disinformation. And I do think that all news organizations need to be centering trust. With an estimated 1.5 billion people, including 168 million here in the U.S., scheduled to vote in 2024, experts say that independent journalism will be key to supporting democracy. Cristina Caicedo-Smith, VOA News. The UN's top court began hearings this week on South Africa's case against Israel for what South Africa calls genocide, a bid to both stop the current conflict in Gaza 
and document what the long-time Palestinian ally sees as a pattern of genocidal conduct by Israeli forces. Israel's top ally, the U.S., has dismissed the case as meritless, raising the stakes for U.S. relations with the nation that disagreed. VOA's Anita Paul reports from Washington. Israel's war in Gaza has a new legal front, as the International Court of Justice on Thursday heard South Africa's case against Israel on charges of genocide, as it attempts to eradicate the militant group Hamas after its stunning October 7th attack on Israeli civilians. The hearing prompted protests outside the United Nations-backed court at The Hague. South Africa launched its argument that Israel has violated the 1948 Genocide Convention and compared the situation to one closer to home. Ronald Lamola is South Africa's Justice Minister. Our government has approached the International Court of Justice to prevent the unfolding genocide in Gaza. We have also asked for provisional measures which include an immediate suspension of Israel's military operations in and against Gaza. The commitment to justice and bring an end to the humanitarian atrocities in Palestine resonate deeply with the collective consciousness of the global community. The scale of these actions is reminiscent of the Rwandan genocide 30 years ago. Officially, Israel's top ally disagrees. John Kirby is director of strategic communications for the National Security Council. We have said repeatedly that we believe um, these uh, allegations, this case, is unfounded uh, and that there's no basis for um, accusations of, of genocide against against Israel. That's not a word that ought to be thrown around lightly. But there is no consensus in Washington, with some politicians and labor leaders supporting South Africa's call for a ceasefire and accusing Israeli forces of being overzealous. A State Department official who resigned in protest filed a document with the court in support of South Africa. Josh Paul is former director in the U.S. State Department's Bureau of Political and Military Affairs. I'm not arguing that there should be a special standard for Israel, a higher one or a lower one. I'm simply arguing that there is a global standard and we need to hold all of our partners to it. Uh, and we need to hold ourselves to it. And in the case of Israel, there are laws that are simply being set aside, uh, overlooked, interpreted differently or, or acted upon differently. And that does not seem to be in accordance with the U.S. approach to the international rule of law. South Africa has long supported the Palestinian cause, with former President Nelson Mandela famously saying, our freedom is incomplete without the freedom of the Palestinians. Analysts say this is about much more than just Israel's conduct. With a growing list of countries and entities supporting Pretoria's view over Washington's, this could have major diplomatic fallout, especially if the UN-backed court renders a judgment against Israel. Michael Walsh is a senior fellow in the Africa program at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. It also brings into question the countries that are continuing to support Israel and provide weapons to Israel and provide intelligence to Israel and doing all these other things. So that has huge implications for U.S. relations with other countries around the world, not just in the short term, but also in the long term. And it also undermines the U.S.'s leadership on human rights in the world moving forward if there's any grounds that are, that are found. While arguments are expected to conclude this week, the court could take years to render a judgment. Meanwhile, the war continues, the death toll climbs, and families suffer. Anita Powell, VOA News, Washington. It's time for my favorite segment of this show, which is your comments on what we have been covering this week. And many of you wrote to us about 
events that we covered in our broadcast. First, we have this voice message. Hello, South Sudan in focus. This is Maladamal in Seattle, Washington. Swearing in National Electoral Commission is absolutely not a guarantee for South Sudan to hold election, but to only flounder resources in the name of carrying out elections. What is that special with 11 months' time that they can do something tangible which they convincingly failed to accomplish in the last five years of the Biden-Lights Peace Agreement? The Commission itself knows that the country is not conducive for free, fair, and credible process. They only accepted the offer because it's beneficial to them. Otherwise, why would sensible human talk of election, yet the so-called government in Juba is dizzy, inciting violence in a VA and jungle where people are being slayed by thugs. Thank you. Uh, South Sudan in focus listener Samuel Ramonye writes about the scheduled general elections in South Sudan later this year. He says, high view is South Sudan in focus. It's time to for elections. And we, the rich and the poor, have equal votes. We should vote wisely for visionary leaders who can determine the direction of our destination, regardless of party, state, tribe. Still on elections, Mading Maluang in Malakal Town says... Someone should tell those members of parliament proposing another five-year extension for the current government that change is gradual. There is no time that we can wait to start. Time is now. Moreover, they must know that we are tired of this coalition and bulky government. The dollar that this government has taken could have developed parts of this country. Finally, we need to see the second version of Kirdid in an elected government, not in coalition. MPs eager for extension should go to their various constituencies and try their luck. Some of you also wrote about cattle raiding and violence in greater jungle, such as Jacob Machueng from Ural in Lake State, who writes... The repeated cattle raiding in Duke County of Jungle State, which has been claiming many lives, needs to be addressed once and for all by leaders of the People Administrative Area and Jungle State. It is disheartening not only to hear that one day goes without hearing that somebody has lost life. Enough is enough. It's time to heal. Peter Majongjul in Block 3 of in, in Bor Block 3 writes, I am shocked and disheartened by reports of continuous cattle raiding in Jungle State. When will this stop? And when will the armed people from Greater People Administrative Area stop killing innocent people and wounding 17 last week in Poktap, Buma, Duke County? My condolences to the family who lost their beloved ones. Let the government intervene <clears throat> Excuse me, and apprehend perpetrators. Also, a call for massive disarmament to pave way for peace and stability ahead of the general election. Peter Jakayom, who says he's a civil society activist in Bor, is concerned about the road ambushes. He writes, Hello, John Tanz and Nabil Biagio. I am a civil society activist in Bor and I'm really tired of the road ambushes along the Juba Bor Road. It's painful when people of the same country kill each other for nothing. Sunday's attack on passengers along the Jubabo Road is an indication that the country is sliding back to war. 
Lastly, lastly, uh, James Roy in Unity State, Banty Roy, Tsai Nabil and John, I hope the five-day meeting between President Salva Kiir and his five governors may bring positive outcome to address the issues of intercommunal violence happening between Twitch community and the Dinkangog, including the people of Gogrial West and, wow, even Apuk community within Warab. Views expressed in this segment does not represent the views of Voice of America or South Sudan in focus. Keep your comments coming and our WhatsApp number is plus one two zero two six three zero eight zero one one. That's all we prepared for you on this Friday, January 12, 2024. We now leave you with Jamnazi Africa and the song I'm Not Sober. I'm your host, John Tanza, on this live broadcast from Studio 14 here in Washington. On behalf of our producer, Nabil Biagio and Peter Heinle, we wish you a lovely evening. Remember to join us next week for another edition of South Sudan in Focus from The Voice of America. Don't go